American soccer fans, welcome to episode 48 of the Stars and Stripes FC podcast. Donald Wine here, co-manager of Stars and Stripes FC, your source for all things U.S. national teams, the players that comprise them, and everything else surrounding the game of soccer in America. We took a couple weeks off, was on vacation, had to get some rest and relaxation, and I got all three of those. So uh, it's good to be back. Hope you guys didn't miss me too much. And I think you know what we're going to discuss this week. The Olympic draw was yesterday, and we know who the U.S. women's national team will be playing in Japan this summer in their quest for another gold medal. But no question, we are going to begin with the biggest topic of the week, probably of the year, if you think about it in terms of soccer, and that's the Super League, the ill-fated 72-hour Super League that was proposed by 12 teams, Real Madrid, Barcelona, Atletico Madrid, Juventus, Inter Milan, AC Milan, Manchester City, Manchester United, Liverpool, Arsenal, Chelsea, and Tottenham. That's right, 11 of the biggest teams on earth and Tottenham. (laughs) But all jokes aside, this took the world by storm when it was announced late Sunday night. And for 48 hours, whenever anyone asked me what I thought of this Super League that was being proposed, I told them all the same thing. This was just negotiations. The 12 teams wanted more money. And they figured they could get it together, separate from the rest of Europe. And let's be clear, UEFA and FIFA may have been on the other side of these negotiations, but they were not on the side of the fans. They're on the side of money, too. They just wanted their money. And they needed the big clubs to bring in the money for them. So by the big clubs separating from them, that was less money on the table for them. So, of course, they came out with their proposal for a newly revamped European format for Champions League, Europa League, and the newly formed Europa Conference League. But it wasn't better. It was just their version of things. And this really played out as a negotiation tactic publicly, very publicly. But at the end of the day, the fans clearly were not on the side of this proposed Super League. And 72 hours after it was announced, it appears to be completely gone. Now, there's a couple things that I want to talk about with regards to the Super League, and and it's 72 hours of being the hottest soccer story on the planet. The first thing is, who was this for? It wasn't for us. It wasn't for me speaking. It wasn't for you out there who considers themselves a diehard of the game. This was for the casuals. This was an attempt to try and bring in more casual fans into the game and get them in early. Who are these casual fans we're talking about? These are the American fans and the Chinese fans and other fans who say they like watching the big teams play. They don't care about the I-bars. They don't care about the Norwich cities. They don't care about the Beneventos. They care about the big teams. And when these big teams come to the United States or they go to Asia or they go to Australia or even you know South Africa, wherever, and they're filling 80,000-seat stadiums, 100,000-seat stadiums, it's not all diehards in that building. There are a lot of casual fans who want to see the big teams play. They want to see the big stars play, and they will pay big money to do it. This was an opportunity, at least from the side of the teams, to try and get that money and pocket it and go about their business together and draw out the middleman, which is UEFA and even FIFA above that. But there are still fans in this country that think this way in other facets of our game right? Relate this. 
when the United States men's national team, when they beat Trinidad and Tobago 7-0, when they beat Jamaica 4-1, people go, oh, I, don't, I can't really be bothered about that. I want to see them play against Germany. I want to see them play against Spain. I want to see them play against Brazil. I want to see them play against Argentina. There's some people who think we should leave CONCACAF altogether, join Comet Bowl, and test ourselves against the big teams in South America and not play friendlies against these CONCACAF teams who we have to play when it comes to World Cup qualifying to get to a World Cup. And as we know, that is not guaranteed. It's sort of the same mentality, if you think about it, because that's what the Super League was trying to create. They thought that a lot of fans just wanted to see the big teams play each other and could not be bothered with the Real Madrid's and the Barca's playing the Ibar's and Alaves's of the world. That they just wanted to play together. And that we want to see it and we would pay big money to do it. And that TV would pay big dollars to show it. And they were probably right in some way. But the idea that UEFA was on the side of the fans, come on. that They have never been on the side of the fans. They have been on the side of money. And that's what this was all about. That's why I think this was all negotiation. Acted out publicly. Super League bit off more than they could chew. UEFA called their bluff. They blinked. Game over. No more Super League. So there's that part. Then there's the fact that I think a lot of people have been missing is that the Super League would have been bad for the main reason of it would have watered down all of these rivalries that make the game great. El Clasico, the Manchester Derby, the North London Derby, Liverpool Man U, the Madrid Derby, the Milan Derby. That's all you'd see. And As a Real Madrid fan, I don't want to see us play Barcelona five, six, seven times a year. I want those two games to mean something. Just like in college football, when Michigan plays Ohio State, they play once. They don't want to play two times. They want to have those bragging rights for an entire year. They want to have those bragging rights as long as possible. And with Real Madrid and Barcelona, they don't want to have it for two weeks or three weeks, or a month, or whatever it is. They want to have it for as long as they possibly can so that when that next game comes up, they they can sit there and say, hey, for the last eight months, we've been tormenting you about how we beat you last time. That's how that works on both sides of the rivalry. And you could say the same about North London. You could say the same about Manchester. Manchester's blue. Manchester's red. We hear that all the time. Do you want to hear it every three weeks? Do you want to have that tagline? It reduces the value of that. So we've, and and the thing about it is here in the United States, we've been toying with that in college football for years. The college football playoff is basically the super league with the only difference being that they are allowing a couple of the smaller teams from the smaller conferences, access to the game, access to the trophy, access to the dollars. But at the end of the day, the college football playoff was created for the big conferences, the power five conferences. It was not created for Tulane or Hawaii. It was created for Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, Michigan, Texas, those type of teams. And that's what the Super League was looking at as influence, as inspiration to try and draw in those fans that only want to see the big games. There's so many people out there who just want to see the big games. And so I see from their point what they were trying to do. I just don't like it. And I know you guys out there don't either. And I think it was the wrong approach. They bit off more than they can chew. That leads me to Florentino Perez. Florentino Perez is the president of Real Madrid. He 
specifically was the architect of this. And he has been out in front as the leader of this, good or bad. When things went hairy a couple days ago and everyone started bawling out, when things went hairy a couple days ago and everyone started dropping out, he was still on TV talking about this is going to succeed. This is going to work. Trying to bring change to the game. This is going to make football better. It's not. And he needs to swallow some pride and humble down and acknowledge that they overplayed their hand a little bit. Discuss changes to the way you do things. That's great. That's what they should constantly be doing, trying to make the game better. If things are wrong, if there's a way to make it better, bring that to the table and discuss it like adults. Instead, he's maintaining. And while many Madrid fans think that's what he should be doing because he's acting on behalf of the club, I think he needs to quit while he's behind. He's trying to secure more money for the club. They're undergoing renovations for the stadium. They've amassed some debt because of that. And, but at the same time, in this effort to try and secure the money in a way that's kind of a strong arm approach, he's going to fumble every bag of the Bernabeu, every single one. And it's only going to cost Real Madrid down the road. It may cost him personally. So my advice to him would be to remember how Real Madrid became Real Madrid. It wasn't through the Super League. It was through taking the system that was created for them and excelling at it, getting the best players, figuring out a way to get the most revenue, whether that is creating a better experience at the stadium, creating ways for fans to link to the team online and through merchandise and through the selling and buying of big players. So, Especially in this COVID, especially in this COVID climate, this was not the right move for him. And really, on both sides, there was—I I keep telling people this—there was a lot of huffing and puffing, but no wolves out here were blowing any houses down. All the houses remained the same. And at the end of the day, what did we get? We have a proposal from UEFA, which is trash, and we have a proposal about a Super League, which is equally trash. No one wins here. They need to go back to the drawing board. They need to sit down at a table like adults and they need to figure this out. And then the final thing that I want to talk about when it comes to the Super League and relating it back to the United States, the implications for men's national team players, the implication for American soccer as a whole. I think people need to keep the same energy when it comes to the Super League. Same with UEFA, same with FIFA. They were rushing to the floor to ban anyone and everyone over just the mere thought of creating a league that didn't involve them. But when it's racism or gender inequality, they have to take their time to think things through and get their lawyers and do a whole bunch of things that take forever, hoping that the situation kind of solves itself and it gets swept under the rug. But don't mess with the money. Oh, no, you mess with the money. We got to come out and we got to say something. We got to kick people out of Champions League. We got to kick people out of our domestic leagues. We got to kick people out of Europe. No one was doing any of that. It was all posturing. It was all negotiations. But at the same time, we need to figure out what it is we're really in this thing for. If we're saying that soccer is for the fans and soccer is for the genuine love of the sport and the game, then money shouldn't be a part of that equation but it very much is when it comes to how they react to things and even how people here react to things. So when you try to relate it to 
Major League Soccer or, you know, anything else when it comes to U.S. Soccer Federation, I think that's closed-minded because people want to point at MLS and its closed system, but, but I'm looking at the American Soccer Pyramid, and do you know what I see? I see four, five, six leagues. You know what I don't see? I don't see promotion relegation on any of them. This is not a Major League Soccer problem. This is American soccer that has to figure out how that's going to work. And really, if we're being honest, it's not going to work right now. I don't think anyone is opposed to promotion relegation or having an open system, but we need to have stability first. We have teams folding left and right. We have teams who are crashing out of leagues before they even start. Hello, Sacramento. But we have to stabilize our pyramid first. We need to make sure all our leagues are strong first before we start talking about shifting dollars and cents between leagues, between divisions. And there'll eventually be some sort of promotion relegation, whether it's closed or open. We all can see that, but some people want it to happen yesterday and other people recognize that it's going to take years for that to be a possibility. So let's focus on getting to the point where we are able to do that first. And this is all a part of that. How you reacted to the Super League is not how people are reacting to a college football playoff or the NFL or the NBA. But where do you think Champions League came from? Where do you think the Premier League came from? Where do you think this idea for Super League came from? It came from the idea that American leagues that are closed, single entity, can bring in a lot of money. The Champions League and Premier League obviously go way back to their starts, but they came about in the same way. The EPL came about with teams wanting to break away from the FA and start their own league. They eventually linked it back together. Everyone went to the table. Everyone gets paid. Champions League, same thing. It was basically a Super League. That's what they were trying to create. They wanted to break away from the old European Cup and form their own Super League. Everyone cooled down. Adults got to the table. Everybody gets paid. This is the next step. Super League comes about. Everyone's angry. They say it's the worst thing that could possibly ever happen when, again, other leagues have and, and competitions have formed this way. They're going to go back to the table, and they're going to try to work out a deal. That's what all of this is about. But the final thing I'll say about this is a lot of people have been saying that it was the American owners in the Premier League that have been trying to instill American ideals into the European game. People have to remember that, yes, Arsenal, Manchester United, Liverpool have long wanted their owners to sell. All of their owners are American but they did not craft this Super League. The architect was Florentino Perez. He is Spanish. And it was supported by Andre Agnelli of Juventus, who is Italian, and others who are not from America. Manchester City is not owned by American team. Even some of the teams that were approached by this and reportedly did not join, like PSG and Bayern, they're not owned by Americans either. Americans aren't imposing American ideas into the world's game. They have long been doing this. The world is just doing what the world has been doing for years. Looking at American systems and seeing how they work 
and trying to figure out how to weave it into their own game. In the end, it's all about money. And there is a reason why the Bundesliga, the Premier League, and every other major league in Europe have been traveling to the U.S. regularly over the past five to seven years to meet with top brass from the NFL and the NBA. Those leagues are making tons of cash, and Europe is trying to figure out how to do the same thing. So don't get mad at the Super League itself. It was a terrible idea. Don't just get mad at the 12 teams. We have to be mad at all of it. We have to keep the same energy for all of it because UEFA is not the good guys here and neither is FIFA. And how it affects America is that we see what happens when you try to overplay your hand. And we need to keep that energy when it comes to other assets of our game. And we should focus on being adults and getting to the table when we need to make the changes needed to make our game great. Okay. That's enough on the Super League. I probably spent longer on it than I was around. I don't know if I went 72 hours, but it was pretty close. We'll save it for the next time some teams want to form another version of the Super League, but we will pause real quick, and then we'll get into the Olympic draw for the women's national team. Be right back. All right, we are back and we have an Olympic draw. The draw took place early Wednesday morning, and I do mean early, 4 a.m. early on the East Coast, which is significant as you will see in a minute. The women's national team are part of a 12-team field competing for the gold medal in women's football, and they were one of the seeded teams in this draw along with host Japan and the Netherlands, which of course was runner-up to the United States in the 2019 World Cup. But the number one team in the world learned who they will face in the group stage of this tournament. And they drew t- and they drew three teams that everyone should be quite familiar with. Sweden, New Zealand, and Australia, who will join the United States in Group G. Sweden is ranked fifth in the current FIFA World Rankings, while Australia is ninth and New Zealand is 22nd. That is a difficult, difficult group. We start with Sweden. Death. Texas drawing Sweden in a major championship tournament. All of these things are certain because for the 929 millionth time, Sweden is in our group in a major women's football tournament. We will face them in Tokyo on July 21st, which is the opener of the group stage for the United States. Again, that game will be at 4.30 a.m. on the East Coast. All of these are early times because of the time difference. July 24th, New Zealand is the opponent. The women travel to Saitama to face the Kiwis, and that game will be actually kind of late, 7.30 a.m. on the East Coast. And then July 27th, it's Australia. We head to Kashima, and that will be at 4 a.m. on the East Coast on July 27th. So first of all, we have two teams that are repeated thorns in the side of the United States Women's National Team, Sweden and Australia. New Zealand, also a tough out. Australia and New Zealand, of course, are the co-hosts of the 2023 World Cup. So we will see both of those teams in 2021 and then once again in 2023. 
but this group is pretty difficult for the United States. And it was going to be, no matter who was going to be in this group, it was going to be very difficult for the United States, given that it is a 12 team tournament and teams like Germany and France aren't even in it. Sweden is a team that we lost to in 2016 in the quarterfinals of the Olympics, but we faced them again in the group stage of the 2019 world cup and beat them. They were a third place finisher in the 2019 world cup, Australia, a team that we've lost to in the past as well. We're just, just given fits by them in every match we play. So it should be a really good one. And New Zealand is a team that will not be scared of us. We have defeated them in the past, obviously, but New Zealand is a tough out. So this will be a difficult group and only two are guaranteed to advance to the knockout stage. It all leads to the gold medal. And that is what the United States women's national team are attempting to do. If they were to get the gold medal, they would become the first team to win the world cup and the Olympics back to back. I know there was a COVID year in between that, but for all intents and purposes, they would be the first team to ever do that. So we'll see if it happens, but July 21st, July 24th, and July 27th, make sure you set your alarms early, go to bed the night before early, so you can wake up rested to cheer on the baddest team on the planet. We'll leave it here for episode 48 of the Stars and Stripes FC podcast. Please like and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back next week and hoping to bring a couple of people onto the show in the the next few weeks. We'll see if we can make it happen, but until then... Take care.